BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Ross Douthat. I'm David Leonhardt. And this is The Argument. This week, President Trump's former lawyer has testified before Congress. Does this mean we're in a new stage of the Trump presidency? You know, once again, I feel like we're left with this question of, you know, does anything matter? Then, is Bernie Sanders the Democratic frontrunner? He may not be the frontrunner, but he is certainly a frontrunner. And finally, a recommendation. This is an art film, art film. After two years, Robert Mueller's investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election finally seems to be winding down. Within weeks, the investigation could be completed and Mueller could submit a report to the Justice Department. But that's not the only investigation that Trump faces. The new Democratic majority in Congress is ready to exercise its power of oversight. Yesterday, Trump's former lawyer Michael Cohen testified in front of the House Oversight Committee about the 2016 campaign, about Trump's business practices, and about other matters. I am here under oath to correct the record, to answer the committee's questions truthfully, and to offer the American people what I know about President Trump. We're recording this late on Wednesday afternoon, and Ross was not able to join us, so Michelle and I are going to sort it all through. Michelle, what do you make of everything that happened with Michael Cohen? So my feeling right now, and we're kind of in between the morning session and the resumption later this evening, is a sort of, you know, numb despair over the fact that this very likely won't be enough to end the unendurable nightmare of this presidency, even though it obviously should be. And you sort of imagine testimony like this from the closest confidant or one of the closest confidants of any other president, you know, not just hard evidence of committing felonies, but also the testament to his, you know, despicable character, the testament to the fact that he was, if not colluding with a foreign power, clearly seeking financial gain from a foreign power. The entire time that he was running for president and saying all of these wonderful things about Vladimir Putin. Try to think back about, like, if you could have foreseen this moment when Trump was elected, you know, if you could have said that within two plus years, Michael Cohen, you know, your consigliere, is going to be sitting in front of Congress calling you a racist, a con man, and a cheat. If you could have projected that or predicted that, you know, back when this this nightmare began, you would have kind of assumed that that was the end game, right? That when you get to that point, it means it's all wrapping up. And yet, you know, once again, I feel like we're left with this question of, you know, does anything matter? Yeah. I mean, I guess so to me, the optimistic take from today is we knew there wasn't going to be some smoking gun that was going to make these Republican House members say, ah, we were wrong to follow them all along. So in that way, that was the least surprising thing about today. But I guess the case for optimism is that while people like you and I have been following this very closely for months on end, a lot of Americans haven't. And this is a hearing that's just going to dominate TV and social media 
And I do think that there's a way in which a whole bunch of people who haven't been paying attention to this are going to start to pay more attention to it. And in that way, it does feel like it is not good for Trump. None of the Republicans are defending him on the merits here, right? They're coming up with these crazy conspiracies. And there's something fascinating about this, too, in that Cohen is actually up there knocking down a lot of stories or rumors about Trump, right? He's kind of saying there was not this mythical elevator tape of Trump hitting Melania he believes doesn't exist. He's saying that even though they paid off someone for information about a love child. He doesn't believe the love child is real. He kind of said that he had never, that to his knowledge, he doesn't know about Trump paying off women for quote unquote medical procedures, which is, is, you know, code for abortion. He says he's never been to Prague. And so he's actually saying a lot of things that are, that, that are exculpatory, that are right, that are exculpatory. You know, obviously the headline or the, the kind of snippet that I assume people will see is that kind of extraordinary opening statement that he made. Yeah. And the conservative writer Byron York had a nice summary of this on Twitter. Here's what he wrote. Michael Cohen is knocking down various crazy anti-Trump stories. Prague, which is a reference to this meeting that apparently didn't happen involving the Trump campaign in Prague. Money laundering, love child, abortion, elevator tape, other tapes, more. This after Republicans spent all their time attacking his credibility. Um, And so actually the only person who's sort of defending Trump on the substance today was Michael Cohen, which is crazy. Well, I have to say, the one thing that really surprised me about all of this is just that Michael Cohen is coming across really well. You know, I think my impression of him has always just been of this dim-witted thug. And, you know, it's not that I don't think, it's not that I think that he's now an honorable man, but he does seem a little bit quicker on his feet than some of these Republican congressmen, not that that's necessarily saying so much. I mean, one of the... Republican congressman said, you called the president a cheat. What would you call yourself? And Michael Cohen said, a fool. There was this like weighty silence as they tried to think about what to say in response, right? I mean, there was almost a sense in which he's really trying to speak to these congressmen who believe in Trump and are sort of caught up in defending Trump the way he was once caught up in defending Trump, right? And he really seemed to be trying to almost like break through to them. I agree he came off well. I think he made only two mistakes. There were a few times where he let his temper get the better of him, and he and he yelled at his Republican questioners. And while you understand why he'd be doing that, I don't think it helps him. And the second, I don't know what you thought about this, but his explanation that the reason that he flipped on Trump is because he decided that Trump had, had become evil after what Trump said about Charlottesville or what Trump did with Putin in Helsinki. I just don't think that's credible. I think it's pretty clear he flipped because he was facing prison time, right? I assume you agree with that. Yes. No, of course. Obviously, he turned on Trump, I think, you know, both out of self-preservation and then also probably out of a sense of betrayal when Trump didn't come to his rescue and and turned on him and threw him under the bus and, you know, kind of pretended that he had never known him or that their relationship hadn't been as intimate as Michael Cohen imagined it to be. But, you know, and the other thing I would say that it was hard to believe was his line about kind of that he never wanted a job in the in the White House. Oh, that's interesting. I I mean, I could see how someone wouldn't. Why why did you not find that credible? Just, I don't know. I just because all the reporting I've seen has, you know, suggested that he you know thought that he was going to be White House chief of staff or, you know, imagined that he was going to Washington. I mean, I just feel like I trust the reporting that I've seen over over Michael Cohen's word. The structure of the thing is so frustrating, right? The like five minute, five minute 
back and forth because, I mean, there were so many threads that I want people to pick up on. And I also just wanted someone to say in response to the Republicans who keep saying, you know, how can we trust you? You have done all these terrible, corrupt things to say, well, what does it say about the president that this was his personal lawyer? And I keep wanting somebody to put an end to this kind of self-righteous posturing of like, we could be doing the people's business and instead we're here listening to a criminal, you know, from the same people that like literally called Diamond and Silk to a hearing about whether or not conservative voices get adequate play on social media. My big takeaway, if we're going to look forward now, is the Democrats need to do a lot more of this which is they really need to use their House majority to try to sort through what's true and what's not about Trump. And look, some of the crazy theories we've heard are going to end up not being true, right? Just as Cohen has shot some of them down. But a lot of them are going to end up being true. And so I guess I look at this and it makes me say the Democrats need to do a lot more of this. They need to do a lot more calling of witnesses. They need to get Trump's tax returns. I, I don't completely understand why they're waiting so long to do that. But I mean, isn't your hope that we basically are now at the beginning of a period in which we're going to see a lot of hearings like this? Yeah, I mean, I think we are. And, you know, Adam Schiff has told me as much that he intends to do some of that with the House Intelligence Committee. I mean, clearly, I think that Jerry Nadler intends to do some of that with the Judiciary Committee. And so speaking to your optimism, you know, there's this really interesting book called The Battle for Public Opinion, which is a sort of wonky book about polling during Watergate Mm -hmm. and looking very carefully at when public opinion turned, because for most of Watergate, people, you know, didn't think it was that important. You know, Nixon and his defenders called it a witch hunt and Republicans in Congress poo-pooed it. And when it really started to turn was when you had televised hearings. I'm not sure if that's replicable in the current environment when everyone's attention is much more fragmented. But this particular hearing, right, I mean, it's not just on cable news, it's on the networks, it's going to be on all of the news broadcasts. And so, I mean, these congressmen, do you think they're really this dumb or are they just sort of being theatrically obtuse? I think they're being theatrically obtuse. What's the old line? It's it's hard to get a man to believe something when when his paycheck depends on not believing it. And for a lot of these people, if they start defying Trump, their political careers are done. Right. But I'm thinking of like the one congressman who says that he never heard of Mike. He's he's implying that Michael Cohen is like thrilled to be on television. And that's what this is all about. And he said something like, I've never heard of you before today. Yeah, that was a weird <laughs> which, moment. Which like really? Well, He was a deputy finance chair of the Republican National Committee. Um, So on the one hand, I thought, like, can that actually be true? But there are probably some people, you know, maybe a lot of people for whom Michael Cohen is like, you know, at best a kind of name that they've seen in the news, but that they don't have a really clear picture of. And again, I just it's become impossible for me to try to, like, project my mind outward to think about, like, how somebody who doesn't think Trump is unfit is processing all of this, because even though I think of myself as an empathetic person, it is very hard for me to get my mind around what it would be like to look at Trump and think that he has any business being president of the United States. So since Ross can't be with us, let me try to channel him for the very end here. I mean, we've both listened to him say 
look, in the end, people elected Trump knowing he was kind of a sleazy businessman. But that's different from there being any evidence that he actually participated in some sort of conspiracy with Putin's government. And I feel like in the lead up to the Mueller report being released, there are a lot of people who are saying, you know, the Mueller report might be disappointing to Trump's critics. And you can see how Cohen's testimony, as damaging as it was, plays into that, right? You know, he never said Trump directed him to lie. So it looks like that BuzzFeed story was wrong. He, he, he Well, wasn't. it does and doesn't, right? I mean, I feel like it kind of suggests that the BuzzFeed story was wrong because he only implicitly urged him to lie. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I guess I, I don't think that's going to win over people who haven't been won over yet. And so I guess I'm sort of interested in, given that case, how you're now feeling about the Mueller report? Are you sort of preparing yourself for the possibility that it's going to feel like a dud? Or or do you still think it's going to be a big deal? Well, I mean, I think both, right? What people like me are hoping from the Mueller report is not necessarily that it's going to expose a giant conspiracy. To me, the giant conspiracy is in plain sight. It's that it will summon enough evidence that people who are kind of mulishly denying it will no longer be able to. And that's a pretty high bar. And so, you know, whether it will end the debate about this stuff, I think, is different than whether it will show that Trump is a traitor and should be impeached. I mean, to me, that's already been amply demonstrated. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not sure I would go as far as traitor, but I, I certainly would go as far as he has violated his oath and violated the law and doesn't deserve to be president. Right. I mean, I would say traitor, probably not in the technical, like, right, probably not under the law. We're not technically, you know, we're not a war with Russia. So I understand, yes, it doesn't meet the legal definition of treason, um, you know, and you could put that on a red baseball cap, you know, doesn't meet the legal definition of treason. But I feel like that's the best you could say for this president. And then there was this cringeworthy moment where a Republican member of Congress tried to defend Trump. And the way he did it was by dragging out Lynn Patton, who's an African-American woman who previously had been a Trump family wedding planner, which qualified her in Trump's estimation to be part of the Department of Housing and Urban Development, and basically literally dragged her out. I don't think she even said anything. She didn't. Right? They just had they just had her standing there being like, here is a black woman who says that Trump isn't racist. Yeah, and in what I thought was one of the finest moments for any House member during the hearing, Brenda Lawrence, who's a congresswoman from Michigan later on, said, how dare you use that old trope of here is a single African-American person who proves whether someone is racist or not. Uh, and I thought that was just a, a really important that she didn't let that moment go, but she really quite bluntly called out the Republicans for doing that. Because, I mean, w the evidence that Donald Trump is racist is not just Michael Cohen. It's like 30 years of public statements. Right. I mean, and this is one of the weirdest taboos in American politics, the, the, the idea that it's kind of in any way controversial, right? I mean, when Kamala Harris recently said, like, yes, Trump is racist, that should no more be a controversial statement than saying, like, yes, Trump's skin color is unnatural, it's just it's evident to the naked eye. It, it does sort of feel like we've entered a new phase here, doesn't it? Right. Which is we're expecting the Mueller report. It's the beginning of these big hearings. And it feels like finally there it's not just going to be through scoops of good journalism, um, but it's going to be through a really public accounting of what Trump has done led by the House Democrats. And, and I don't know how it's going to end, but I'm happy to be at that phase. 
Do you think this hearing gets us closer to impeachment proceedings? In the strict definition, I'd say yes, but only a little bit closer. I mean, I don't think the House should jump from this to impeachment. As you said, this raises a whole bunch of other questions the House needs to pursue. They need to go after his tax returns. They need to pursue this notion that Jay Sekulow, a White House lawyer, may have played a role in preparing Cohen's false testimony that's going to land Cohen in jail. So to me, there is no real upside in the Democrats opening something that they call capital I impeachment. I think what they should instead do is go really hard after the substance of all this stuff, the substance of Russia, the substance of the White House cover up, the substance of the campaign finance violations, all of it. Go really hard after it. And and then uh, a few months from now, when it no longer feels like, as you said, we're just sort of tantalizingly at the beginning of this evidence, but we actually have a clearer sense of what really happened. At that point, I'm totally open to the idea that they should open impeachment hearings. And in fact, maybe it will be the only good option. At this point, I guess I think that it will look more political if they open impeachment. And I think they should keep going after the substance of it. Although I agree with you (laughs) on the substance, I don't think it's crazy to be talking about impeachment. It's probably right. And look, obviously, uh, we're going to learn a lot more in the next few weeks um, because we're expecting the Mueller report then. And so we will come back to talk about that on the show, of course, when it comes out. Now that we're going to take a quick break and we will be back for a segment with Ross to talk about Bernie Sanders. If you had more time in the day, would you take a nap, read a book? talk with a friend? When something's important to you, it's easier to make time for it. Therapy can help you decide what matters most. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on your schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com opinion today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com opinion. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. Bernie Sanders is back. So, Senator Sanders, you're going to run for president. I am going to run for president. That's correct. And this time, he isn't just a long-shot outsider. Among the 2020 presidential candidates, he leads everyone but Joe Biden in the polls. And it's still not clear whether Biden is even running. On the day that Sanders announced his campaign, he raised $6 million, far more than any other candidates did on their announcement day. Today, we're going to talk about whether Sanders deserves to be treated as the frontrunner and whether his presence in the campaign is likely to help or hurt the Democrats retake the White House. But I want to start with the emotional aspect of the Sanders campaign, because it really does inspire such strong feelings from Democratic voters. Many view him as the only good candidate, while many others seem to resent him. Michelle, can you help us understand why Bernie gets people so worked up? It's a couple of different things. I mean, there's still a lot of really hard feelings left over from 2016. A lot of people feel like he hung on too long after there was no way that he could get the nomination and that kind of left progressives in the party 
demobilized and demoralized. And obviously, the Russians were able to exploit that. Um, People believe that when he finally did endorse Hillary and start campaigning for her, that it was sort of grudging and half-hearted. And, you know, the the whole concept of the Bernie bro is really controversial and volatile. And I understand that a lot of his supporters resent it because they feel like it's a smear of the whole movement. Can you, Michelle, can you just define for our listeners what is a Bernie bro? A certain kind of socialist white male who enjoys hectoring non-Bernie supporters about why their concerns with identity politics are kind of trivial and bourgeois. There's just like a certain kind of, in my experience, sneering white male Bernie supporter that was so grating and that I think it unfairly maybe colored some of my perceptions of Bernie. Um, Let me put it this way. My husband and I both have acquaintances that we will probably never speak to again because of our interactions over the 2016 campaign. Right. So this to me is one of the big questions hanging over Bernie, because I've always thought, unlike a lot of people, that he may not be the front runner for the nomination, but he is certainly a front runner. You know, you are looking at you're looking at a divided field, right, with lots and lots and lots of candidates getting in. Obviously, Bernie isn't going to command all the voters who voted for him as a protest vote against Hillary Clinton. But at the very least, there's clearly 15 to 20 to 25 percent of the Democratic electorate that is plausibly ready for Bernie. And that's a big chunk. And in a divided field, that's a chunk to build on if you want to win New Hampshire and Iowa, which are both plausible states, very plausible states for Bernie Sanders to win. So I've I've always sort of taken him very seriously as a candidate. To me, the big question is the one raised by Michelle's bad memories, right, which is that there is this extraordinary level of ill feelings left over from the 2016 campaign on the Democratic side that I think creates a strong anti-Bernie bias among a bunch of the kind of liberals and progressives who I would think would in a different context be open to supporting him. And and that to me is sort of a big hurdle potentially that he has to get over. I'm not saying he's going to win, but isn't that a bigger issue on left Twitter, as people say, than in the real world? Aren't a lot of those feelings more intense among journalists and operatives than among large numbers of voters? And if Bernie actually emerges as one of the two people in this race... I don't know. I, I guess my instinct is he, he's not actually going to lose that many votes over those bad feelings. I think if you look at the polls, you know, if you look at polls kind of asking Harris supporters, for example, their opinions of the other candidates, they don't, you know, people who support Kamala Harris don't have negative opinions, by and large, of Bernie Sanders. And that's sort of true for a lot of the candidates, right? The Democratic electorate is much less polarized than Twitter. And, you know, so my worst case scenario is that it comes down to Bernie Sanders and Kamala Harris. And then we have this like reprise of this knockdown drag out battle between a class first approach to progressive politics and one that takes into account issues of representation and identity politics, for, for lack of a better word. And so, you know, I think that that could potentially get really ugly. But, you know, if Bernie Sanders comes out of this process as the nominee, I don't I think that people will coalesce behind him 
pretty quickly. And there's something interesting going on, which is that if he were anyone else, I think it would be obvious to everyone that he was the front runner, right? If that he's leading in the polls, he's leading in donations, he was the runner up last time around. And there is something like Trump in that it took everybody, I think, a long time to internalize the fact that Trump was the front runner, even though he was leading in the polls, even though by all sorts of metrics, he was the front runner, you just couldn't get your head around it. And so I think there's something similar going on here. I think there's a fascinating analogy, which I keep pushing on Twitter, and I, I don't people aren't really excited by it. So maybe it's not that fascinating. But between Bernie Sanders now and Ronald Reagan in 1976 and 1980, where Sanders looks a lot like Reagan did going into the 1980 election. He is the runner up from a bitterly contested primary battle, like the primary battle Reagan fought against Ford. He is the avatar of a sort of ideological movement within his political party. He's widely seen as too old and too extreme to get his party's nomination, let alone to win the presidency. Um, And then he's up against potentially a president in Donald Trump who, for all their personal differences, has some resemblance to Jimmy Carter in the sense of being this sort of weak president trying to hold together a failing coalition. Um, So I, I can totally tell a story where what happened with Reagan in 1980 happens with Bernie Sanders in 20 in 2020, and he's the next president of the United States. And I I like to tell that story to conservative audiences just to just to freak them out a little bit. When you make that argument, it almost you know sort of makes me more inclined to support Bernie Sanders. My own feeling, I still have the fear that he's too old, and that even though he's incredibly popular. Hillary Clinton was also incredibly popular before the 2016 election. And so, you know, again, maybe it's just my age or my own sort of personal temperamental caution. But I do worry that when the videos of him praising the old Soviet Union or praising, you know, the Sandinistas in Nicaragua, I think that, you know, the younger socialists can't quite imagine that that will have any salience in the modern world. I kind of feel like for people over 40, it will. And this, I think, goes to part of why he makes so many people who don't support him, but who kind of support his politics so angry, is that his whole theory of the case is that it's not just that he doesn't sort of take identity politics seriously. It's that he can't quite believe that anybody else takes identity politics seriously. And so there's this been this debate among people who don't like Trump ever since the calamity of the election over whether his voters were driven by kind of, quote, economic anxiety or whether they were driven by racial resentment or, you know, in what proportion those two things played a role. And Sanders, I think, believes that they were driven by economic anxiety And, you know, a week ago, one of his pollsters was telling Politico that they think that they can win states like Montana and West Virginia and Indiana. So they have, you know, basically this analysis of white working class voters that if you give them a populist option, all that these kind of cultural grievances will become secondary and will become less important. And I don't see any evidence in decades of American politics to make me think that that's true. Look, I'm not a Bernie bro, as 
the Bernie bros will be the first to tell you. But I, I think there there is a way in which Bernie's at the sweet spot of, of American politics, which is economically left. Yes, he's more to the left than most Americans, but economically left and uh, sort of not talking that much about the other stuff. Do you disagree? But then why aren't you then why aren't you behind him? Well, so that's a fair question. So my objection, so I, to me, the best thing about Bernie is one, that he's at that sweet spot. Two, I think he's pushing in the right direction. And three, he doesn't talk like uh, a journalist or an economist. He talks like a really savvy politician who just keeps repeating a message again and again. My problems with him are that when you scratch the surface of his policies, I think they're a lot less thoughtful than, say, Elizabeth Warren's policies. I think when you go into the details of her policies, which are also trying to move the country to the left, she gives more thought to things like unintended consequences and, and actual details of implementation. And I think Bernie's basic analysis of how he would succeed as president is uh, of, look, uh, we're just going to build a movement and the Republicans are going to have to come along, I think is just way too simplistic. And, and those are my problems with him. I think we also haven't tested the hypothesis that Bernie-level leftism can be a general election winner. And and just, just to be clear, I think Bernie can beat Trump. I think he would might have a tougher time than a self-consciously moderate Democratic candidate. I'm not sure he'd have a tougher time than the other people running in the sort of le- liberal-to-left lane, which is a lot of people right now. But it's not just that Bernie's positions are on the left because it's true that the party as a whole has moved to roughly where he is. It's also that he does have this whole personal history as a tribune of socialism. And we can debate and go back and forth about what socialism means. But to Bernie Sanders in the 1970s and 80s, it clearly meant that the Soviet Union was kind of kind of a cool place, right? I don't think he he is literally a good representative of what the Democratic Party is, right? I mean, the Democratic Party at this point is a coalition of people of color and affluent, educated white liberals, right? And so to kind of have somebody like Bernie, who, you know, obviously draws from both of those groups, absolutely, but whose vision of what the progressive movement is, I think, still imagines a lot of people from the white working class. I'm just not sure that that's the coalition that you should be focused on mobilizing if you want to win. But I think it's possible that he will run a much savvier campaign this time around. You know, he has a campaign manager, Faz Shakir. You know, there's something lovely about the fact that the most viable Jewish politician to ever wage, you know, to ever run for president now has as far as I know, the first Muslim to run a major presidential campaign. That's sort of the future that I want. So, you know, it's possible that he will run a campaign that, you know, kind of sidesteps some of what I see as a blinkered view of kind of what the Democratic Party is. So let's end here. I mean, I I view, Ross, you said before that you clearly think Bernie Sanders is a frontrunner. I would, to me, right now, in terms of likelihood of getting the nomination, I put Sanders, Kamala Harris, and Joe Biden, who may or may not run, in the top tier. And then I think there's a next tier that includes Beto and Elizabeth Warren and maybe some others. Any objections to the way I've I've laid it out there? Yeah, no. I mean, I think I would put Cory Booker in the, in the next tier as well. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I mean, I think Biden... Biden is weird. He's sort of like right now the dark matter of the of the race where we just we know something with Sanders, right? We know that there is sort of 
a committed Bernie movement there that may only be 15 percent of the Democratic electorate, but it's real. With Biden, it's more sort of general good feelings about the guy that haven't been tested in the heat of a campaign. So in certain ways, you could say he's sort of in a different category from Harris and Sanders. So there's this poll that got a lot of attention in which Democrats were asked whether they want a candidate who is going to win or with whom a candidate with whom they agree. And it was a clear result. Democrats want a candidate who's going to win. So, Ross, if you were offering the Democrats advice, I know one of your favorite pastimes, which of all these top tier candidates do you think gives them the best chance to win? I mean, I think if we're if we're including Biden in the top three, I think Biden is the most likely to win with the largest possible majority. It doesn't mean he will, but I think that's that's still the safest and most plausible bet. I think with Bernie and Harris, the question is basically the, the way that Bernie wins bigger than Harris is if he gives a lot of conservatives the sense that he really only cares about class and not about culture war, which is, of course, exactly the thing that Michelle finds potentially objectionable about him. But one of the things that the Trump-era Republican Party has been able to do is sort of maintain this sort of level of culture war mobilization and culture war anxiety among religious conservatives especially. And speaking as a religious conservative, I like the fact that Bernie wants to talk about class more than he wants to talk about culture war, basically. And with Harris, you might end up with with the reverse. And that that's the path to a bigger Bernie victory. Well, we want to invite you to let us know which candidates we're not talking enough about. Um, give us a call at 347-915-4324 and tell us which of the Democratic candidates you want to hear more about. If you do so, we may play you on the show. Now it's time for our weekly recommendation. Every week, we give you a tip of a way to get your mind off of politics. Ross, it is your turn this week. What do you have for us? Well, we've been talking about Bernie Sanders and his possible affection for the Soviet Union back in the day. And by coincidence, the Oscars just happened this week. And one of the foreign language film nominees, which didn't win, but maybe deserved to, was a movie called Cold War by a Polish filmmaker whose name is Paweł Pawlikowski. Apologies to any Polish listeners if I butchered that. And I, I also recommend his previous film, Ida. They're both movies set in Eastern Europe under communist rule between World War II and the fall of the Berlin Wall. And Cold War is a romance, and it is super romantic. It's the kind of romantic movie where people do incredibly stupid things for love and for the hate that love produces and so on. But it's basically about a couple from Poland. But the movie basically hopscotches around through different European settings in the, from the 40s into the early 60s. And it's fascinating. His last movie was about a Polish nun whose parents probably died in the Holocaust. Also fascinating. So check it out and see what you think of Soviet communism before Bernie brings it back. I really liked Cold War a lot, although there was something about it that was so mannered. I mean, it's this black and white. It's shot in, I don't even know how to describe the aspect ratio, but it's shot in this. It's like a square rather than a widescreen, basically. And the whole, I really enjoyed it, but I definitely, the whole time I was watching it was like, 
I had this soundtrack in my head that was like, this is an art film, art film. Like it was, you know, when I was growing up in, you know, kind of the horrible suburbs and I imagined that someday I would get to New York City and go to indie movie houses. This was the kind of movie I imagined I would see, you know, brooding black and white Eastern European cinema with, you know, kind of romantic interludes in Paris jazz clubs and then a tragic ending that I'm not going to give away. It's that's totally right. Yeah. It, it, well, what what's great about it is that it feels like it could have been made in like 1963, right? That it's like I, I think it's it sort of seems like it could have been successfully sealed in a time capsule from the beat generation and sort of dropped into art houses today. And it's in theaters now and available uh, for streaming or just in theaters? I don't think it's uh, it's available for streaming yet. I think it's just in theaters, which is, as Michelle says, the way to see it. You want the dingiest possible theater. You know, you want like four weirdos in trench coats in different <laughs> parts of the movie theater. I'm sure the previews will all be, you know, in French or something. So find that experience and then go to a jazz club afterward. Okay, Ross, and once more, the name of the movie? The name of the movie is... Cold War, but it's hot. <laughs> Excellent. That is our recommendation for the week. As always, we would like to hear your feedback. You can call and leave us a voicemail at 347-915-4324, and we may play you on the show. You can also email us at argument at nytimes.com. If you like what you hear, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. This week's show was produced by Alex Laughlin for Transmitter Media and edited by Lacey Roberts. Our executive producer is Greta Cohn. We had help, as we always do, from Tyson Evans, Phoebe Lett, Ian Prasad Philbrick, and Francis Ye. Our theme was composed by Allison Layton Brown. We will see you next week. I just need to look up a yep. pronun- pronunciation it's, issue. It's Mueller. <laughs> <laughs>